blockchain fundamentally is the reason why I got into this space is because it's an exciting technology to have something, uh, a ledger that's distributed and immutable. Accountants absolutely love controls. They like to, you know, get supporting documentation, something that's substantive that proves transactions that actually occurred. And to be able to have date, time, stamps, as well as the double-sided ledgering, that's all feasible and possible on the blockchain. Welcome to Controllers Classified, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the dynamic world of controllers, accountants, and finance leaders, and hear how their ever-evolving roles are redefining accounting and the future of business. And now, here's your host, Eric Zhou. Welcome to Controllers Classified. I'm your host, Eric Joe, Chief Accounting Officer at Brex. And I am excited to welcome today's guest, Sean Soper, Head of Financial Operations and Accounting at Alchemy. Alchemy provides the leading blockchain development platform. And given that, it's no surprise that today's conversation will deep dive into technology and the role it could play in transforming accounting and finance in the future. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be here. So you've mentioned you thrive in disruptive technologies and emerging markets. How has that shaped your career and more specifically, you know, your views on the role of finance at companies in these spaces? Thriving is a very strong word. I think I probably would put surviving if I could change it. But it has been like a learning lesson just going through emerging tech, disruptive tech and sort of operating in an area where the playbook hasn't been created before. So from that perspective, there's there's a lot of strategic insights that I can either glean from past experiences that I can lend to new companies that I join, or there's something that either I'm taking from my public accounting experience that that also is like pretty industry specific that I can lend to the role that I'm walking into. And I think one of the crucial aspects about being a controller in the startup space is to be strategic as much of a strategic partner as possible to your organization to help them operationalize towards those goals. I like to say it's a little bit less CYA and a little bit more like steward to an organization. And then, you know, in terms of keeping up with the times and working in these disruptive technologies, I know, I know, I know you've been trying to keep up with this stuff by getting continuing education credits. I know you've gotten several certificates. You know, what did that entail and, and how do you think it advanced your career and professional goals? Honestly, the, uh, the certificates are more along the lines of intellectual curiosity and just wanting to understand my industry a little bit more. Again, going back to the point is of being a good steward for an organization. There's a lot of things that you can glean from industry specific knowledge that can help lend towards like some of the accounting guidance that that are already like pretty vanilla with prior experiences and cross industries like 842 at Sunrun. I was going to, uh, as understood the technology more such that the decentralized grid infrastructure and how project finance supported our monetization strategy would be crucial to like lending those incentive tax credits or SRECs towards operating and leasing models, which helped define where they're going to be categorized on balance sheet. And so that's an example. The other example would be along the lines of getting the blockchain and cryptocurrency certificates at um, at Alchemy during the time I was here. 
And and that also just helped me understand crypto assets. What are the distinctions between stable coins or just regular crypto assets, as we know, as Bitcoin and Ethereum? And actually, that helps lend towards accounting guidance from 606 for non-cash considerations, sort of how to treat revenue that's denominated in a crypto asset and why I would prefer to have it be a stable coin as opposed to a crypto asset. I have one follow-up question on what you just said. You mentioned, you know, 842 for, for our listeners out here, out here that that's the leasing standard uh, that was released some years ago. You have to now record like a right of use asset, a right of a right of use liability, right? And you just mentioned thinking through the tax credits that would be involved with solar at Sunrun. Did that play into the calculation of those? No, it's absolutely part of well. When you start thinking of Sunrun as a project finance company and the fact that the incentive tax credits are part of the portfolio tranche that then we're going to sell to the variable interest entity and then have the right of use asset and liability associated with the lease product, that incentive tax credit does play a part. So you're right there. Oh, interesting. And and that's kind of like, you know, I, I, I'm hopefully I'm not belaboring this point, but if I was renting out office space, but then I had a sublease, I know that sublease would be part of the general calculation of my master lease. In your case, it's just another cash flow. That those incentive uh, tax credits then therefore have to be included for that as well. Oh, that's interesting. Yep, and it's uh, it's oftentimes people think of Sunrun as a like a residential solar company probably puts up solar panels on people's roofs, which they do. But it's a lot of partnerships that that they have with third parties to be able to do that. But for the most part, it's a project finance company. Oh, interesting. Well, in, in your current company, and for those of you who don't know fully, Alchemy is a Web3 development platform bringing blockchain technology to billions of people around the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current role there and, and what are your priorities going into the new year? Yeah, so at my current role, I'm basically the head of financial operations as well as an accounting. And that's really the um, organic sort of growth of the fact that I came in as a controller. And and then um, very quickly, I realized that there was a, a, a pretty large tech stack that needed to be developed to help operationalize the business to allow for them to, you know, close timely, have complete accurate and and cut off controls and great results, accurate results coming out of it. So yeah, basically it's currently my areas of focus are threefold. First, it's going to be around the financial close process, which is pretty vanilla with most other companies or industries. And it's just making sure that we're tightening up the close process and removing any manual processes that are there. It helps us make you know faster decisions as we close sooner. Second is going to be around the the reporting and analytics piece, which we're trying to understand areas to save costs for the company. And so part of the financial operations process is to help understand our direct costs associated with serving our customers and then be able to bifurcate that into product lines and potentially what's fixed and variable. So that's another big push. And then the last one is going to be around cash management where we have both fiat and crypto as payment from customers. So it's really like building out the right treasury management and treasury operations to be able to support that as a business and and take advantage of the great T-bill yields 
and staking yields that we can get right now. One quick follow-up on that in terms of treasury management. When I think about treasury management, I have our U.S. cash. We have some foreign subsidiaries. And so we do have some cash sitting in Canadian dollars or in shekels in Israel or, or, or reality in Brazil. And there is some minor FX risk that we think about, especially when we kind of have to contribute funds into uh, the local entity to make payroll, et cetera, the spot rate trades, et cetera. You know, you naturally are holding digital assets, but then when you report, you're reporting in USD. Are you, are, is it the same kind of principle, like in terms of managing that price risk on the crypto? And how, how do you guys manage that? Yeah, we don't have like a, an OCI and it, we, we're, we're not doing any hedges relative to that. But what we do, to your point, is denominate in USD as a US GAAP company. And so, um, we, we take price oracles that are basically best practices right now to take from coin market cap and coin gecko. So sort of do a weighted average of those price oracles at any given point. Generally, we're looking at U, um, zero UTC, the closing price the last day for the reporting period. And that's sort of what we're doing and during our each financial close process and reporting period thereafter. So going into kind of the state of the union for blockchain and Web3, you know, one of the use cases related to blockchain was conducting transactions safely and securely. But it kind of feels like the tech hasn't been able to achieve that efficiently. I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that statement. Yeah, no, this is a great question because it's um, blockchain fundamentally is it has the reason why I got into this space is because it's an exciting technology to have something, uh, a ledger that's distributed and immutable. Accountants absolutely love controls. They like to get supporting documentation, something that's substantive that proves transactions that actually occurred. And to be able to have date, time, stamps, as well as the double-sided ledgering, that's all feasible and possible on the blockchain in, in a way that could be tested publicly and verified publicly. So I'd say that is the exciting part about the technology and how it translates into accounting. But there are constraints and they're going to be around, um, like regulatory is a big one. The lack of guidance around regulatory in digital assets. FASB is getting a, a lot better about classifying things appropriately. And yeah, basically, the, I'd say regulatory frameworks are, are a little lacking as well as the technological constraints of the blockchain, as well as the infrastructure immaturity. That's sort of what's causing a lack of global or mass adoption, in my opinion. What about like the development of blockchains and, and where they're going, like in terms of scalability and, and, and things of that nature? Yeah, no, I think uh, there's uh, the development of blockchain. Um, if I were to focus in, in, in a particular area, it'd be around the technological constraint that I was talking about. Some some of them are known. Some people call it synonymously the blockchain trilemma. It's the struggle between the um, the, the security, scalability, and uh, centralization aspect of the blockchain. It's always fighting against those three different aspects of the blockchain. Whereas in, you know, in, in some areas like Bitcoin is known for its strong security and decentralization, but it faces tons of scalability issues. And we see that in 
latent transactions, high, high cost of those transactions. It's not really feasible to do mass small transactions that you'd see at point of sale machine because it's a lack of scale. But you may see something like a layer two, which is effectively a chain, a side chain to like an Ethereum chain that allows off chain computations to be done. And it makes it cheaper, faster, and more efficient. Then that would be something that would be more akin to a point of sale transaction. So I could see that in the future supporting retail and and having more adoption globally. Are these really kind of like trade-offs that developers or designers have to make when creating a blockchain system? That's the current constraint. You make it sound like you, you call it a trilemma. What that tells me is I can't actually have it all potentially, or like there needs to be further development or appendages to an existing blockchain to make it happen. Precisely. That's that's what makes it pretty dubious. And like, if in my opinion, is what's causing the lack of adoption. To the extent the trilemma gets solved, I imagine that's going to happen. Uh, it's probably going to happen pretty soon. And like I mentioned, the layer two scaling solutions are already available today, and and they're 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 hitting pretty pretty massive scale at this point. I got to tell you a story just from our end. So I, I've been at Brex for five years. Uh, we've been a corporate card issuer since the beginning. That's our main line of business. And so when you talk about payment systems, right, we're, we're on the MasterCard network. We also ha- we have some visas out there, but mainly on the MasterCard network. And I remember in the early days, you know, we were talking about the competitive advantage that blockchain may have over the long term versus card. And, and it all depends on adoption and there's many factors kind of beyond our control. But the one thing that brought us that back to, no, cards is a good bet. And plus, we think we can underwrite some of these startups and other companies way better than traditional institutions. It was just a stat, like, you know, on on a card network, you can process 30,000 transactions a minute, a second. Like, it, it was something very high. And then on Bitcoin specifically, I heard it was something like seven transactions a minute. So when you think about payments, going back to scalability and things like that, you know, that's obviously very important. Like you can't have Bitcoin promulgated throughout the masses for consumers if you're waiting on a coffee at Starbucks and it takes like 30 seconds for that charge right. to go through, right? Yeah. Like that doesn't have that. It just doesn't work for Starbucks. Like, so where is that? Te- you're saying that tech for payments is going to be better because of, that layer two you just mentioned, right? Is that and that's the I'm, I'm guessing that's the goal is to get more transactions per minute for for these coins. Absolutely, to make it feasible. And different um, networks have technology that facilitate their scale, decentralization, security aspects. And some are going to be more hardware um, uh, heavy um, than than others. Like Solana is going to be a more hard uh, hardware heavy network protocol, but when you today, if one were to make a point of sale transaction Solana, it would clear within seconds, and it very very different from like Bitcoin. Um, but it's it's an entirely different L1 chain, but it's built for speed of transactions in mind from the onset. So Bitcoin, on the other hand, was more designed for a store of value 
as opposed to like a payments remittance chain. So I think there's going to be different use cases for different chains in the future. And there, there's going to be, you know, everything covering the gamut from our, you know, financial systems, financial services, payment rails, and then um, potentially ERP, um, you know, being able to have a private or public blockchain that can have all the transactions in there and just be um, a recording device as opposed to uh, payment remittance. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the stable coins are also great because they are on, um, you know, different chains. They could exist on Solana and Ethereum, but they allow for us to be able to hedge to the USD and um, in, in, in basically hedge against any price volatility that you would see in Solana or Ethereum, say. And then tell me about kind of like, you know, your, your Web3 company, what about within finance and accounting as you operate today? What do you see as the use cases for blockchain or potential ones in the future? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this a little bit. Um, the ERP aspect to me is really quite exciting to be able to do a triple ledger in a um, either a private or a public chain. I think that that is where I see it going to in the future. There still hasn't been a system that I've seen that that does this yet, but uh, I know some. What do you mean by triple ledger? Like, yep. like yeah. as opposed to a, a double a double entry system, like a triple entry system, or like how are you? How are you think? How should I think about? Is it not just debits and credits anymore, or or what is it? That's exactly right. Not since the 1400s has it iterated past just the debit and credit. And Luca so, Petroli. Yeah, yes, exactly. that's the guy, the yes. father, the 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 grandfather of accounting. Yeah, yeah the grandfather, and um, you know, it's still it's it's amazing that that hasn't evolved since the 1400s. And and yeah, we've got different systems and different ERPs. We've digitized a lot. That it, certainly happened. We're no longer on, you know, actual ledgers. We're, we're you know, now on computers and millions of times faster. But ultimately, the foundation still hasn't changed. And the triple ledger is is effectively that debit, credit, and date and time that occurs at the the very same time. So from that perspective, it's really quite exciting because if you can harken back to your public accounting days when you're looking for, as an attestation junior, your staff, you're going through supporting documentation for AR, AP, cash transactions, and confirmations with the bank. Imagine being able to pull that information from a ledger to verify that it happened on one on, on a date and time with respect to that debit and credit transaction. And so that's the value or the opportunity that I see in accounting. So what is the third ledger? Like, what is what is the concept of, is it just, is, is that just, does that, does that just mean it's on the chain? That's the it, third place that you can kind of verify the records of a company against versus potentially going through the rigmarole of exactly. the auto request list, et cetera. You have access to that, that blockchain to kind of verify on your own without necessarily bothering the, the client, quote unquote. It precisely. Instead of going, like, I remember it's always, you got to go with a third party agreement outside of the control of the, the um, attestation client. And so, you know, you're basically going to third party documentation, which is a distributed and immutable ledger. 
to be able to verify the transaction. How close do you think we are? Very, very far. <laughs> it okay. is. I, I, I wish I could say. So NetSuite's going to stay in business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's still a lot of development work to be done, and there's, uh, like, I, I'm sure not every company wants their cash balance available for someone to verify, and so you know whether it's a private company or a public company, I, I just don't think that's good practice. So you know, there's, there's. Other technologies like zero zero knowledge proof, um, zero knowledge protocols that allow for you know private chain uh, transactions for certain sensitive or confidential um, uh, uh, transactions on the chain. So that that's an advent that could help with some of that, and then you can also have public chains which which are available right now. So putting it together in a way that kind of works really well. And is built for scale and is also, you know, really fast, efficient and, and cheap to use. I think uh, that's that's hasn't been created yet. One of the um, one of the developments that I'm aware of in kind of the digital assets space or the crypto asset space recently is some new guidance that the FASB released uh, related to the fair value accounting of, of crypto. And so, you know, where do you see regulation going from here? And what about other accounting considerations for digital assets and Web3 in general? Maybe you can even go over for our audience what the new standards are for fair value. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think first it's, it's, it's a good call out to say that, you know, FASB regulators are getting more educated about blockchain and appropriately trying to carve them out from you know, the regular ASU of three, 350 of like goodwill, intangible, indefinite life intangibles to something in its own class. And so I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up like, this is a great step in the right direction. Um, but in general, the, the, the TLDR is that it's a symmetric shift from the lower cost of market impairment model, which they previously had to more the fair value measurement. And uh, I think from there, it's going to be quite interesting to see how other companies that are not in the crypto space actually want to hold digital assets because now it's it's got fair value treatment and fair value measurement. And uh, I, I think greater adoption can be had in moving in this direction. But yeah, generally, uh, it's giving the assets their own place on the balance sheet in giving a more precise, transparent way to show what's happening with those assets. It's also a good call out that um, it's only for some crypto assets, as it's mainly for those that meet the definition of an intangible assets, which are fungible, not issued by the reporting entity, and don't have contractual enforceable rights. So that's not going to be an NFT or tokenized asset, or even stablecoin for that matter. falls out of that scope, but rather something like Ethereum or Bitcoin is going to definitely fall in that scope, provided it's not issued by the reporting entity. Let, let, me, let me take a step back and, and try to reiterate what you just said, because I want to understand. Ethereum, Bitcoin, there's other currencies, like cryptocurrencies that we talk about. Those are the kinds of assets that the standard applies to. But an NFT or, or some piece of digital art, like those monkeys that I see everywhere, those chimps with, with the weird art and all that, 
you know that that's still up, that's still 350 like you have to still hold it at lower of cost or market so to speak right like for that's now. not something you can measure at fair value period to period and get a mark to market is that is that the right way to think about it that is the right way to think about it and and to your question earlier about where where do i see the guidance going from here it's the first step and then i think creating you know sub assets class sub asset classes under you know crypto assets you know and define have the definitions and the the guidance and rulings around that um, be even more distilled and 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 um and and better thought through is is where we're going to go from here but it's a good first step i mean it kind of makes sense in terms of other financial assets like you know you have assets that are more liquid that are more easily quoted and you know you know or you have similarly priced assets and you know we define them on the fair value hierarchy when you're going through your measurement exercises level 1 level 2 but then you have your more opaque you know financial assets whether it's an investment in a private company or, or or something else right and you know you might do your best to hold it at fair value or come up with a fair value but sometimes it is just lower of cost or market um, given and and if lost if, if no idea what the market is sometimes it is just cost so I think that makes sense yeah exactly yeah there's there's no principal market being defined for these nfts so it's it's really hard to say um in in what do they say in art you know it's like in the eye of the beholder some some of these nft monkeys might hold millions of value millions of dollars of value to some folks you know one one of the things that i know you're really involved in is community building uh you're 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 a part of a number of them can you just walk our listeners through the communities that you're currently a part of how often you meet with other members you know do you share notes like what what's the process today like you know given like we're fully remote almost in, in many companies and what are the day-to-day expectations of members uh, if they choose to be a part of, of the group? Yeah, now I'll call out two memberships that I'm a part of. It's uh, F-Suite as well as Operators Guild. And both are great communities and dif- different in their respective like professionals that they attract towards those groups. I, I like to be a part of them because I sort of straddle both worlds in financial operations and accounting. And so... Um, I, I do try to meet with them as often as possible, but to be honest, I'm very time constrained and um, it ends up being once a quarter, maybe for each of the respective memberships that I'm part of. But I do try to be engaging on the forums. If there's something that has either been brought up before that I can use in my current day to day or reciprocally, if there's something that I've done before that I can share to the community. I'll go ahead and do so. So that's a really easy Slack message to the community or in the forums itself um, to be able to either inform or or get an update from. So I would say about one to two hours each week on the community side. But uh, being working remote, I'm able to like meet with my local chapter when an in-person event is going to occur. Also, you know, just jump on the forums and, and talk to the, the, the national national uh, audience there. I mean, where, where do you think the communities are going from here? Um, maybe we talk a little bit about RTO, return to office, potentially. 
Um, you know, what, what's your footprint right now at Alchemy um, in terms of a physical footprint? And, and, and how do you think we evolve from here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So from Alchemy's perspective, RTO is not really been a thing that's come up because for the most part, we have folks in the New York and San Francisco office. There's a few like myself that are remote, but there, there was a period of time where that was honored during the hiring process. And so, you know, they still honored just the same. Um, but similar to my membership associations, I, I do want to try to have an in-person visit to sort of help round out a lot of the communications. I think there's a lot to be had for actual in-person, person-to-person conversations that cannot be cannot be had over, over Zoom calls. And so, you know, I do try to be out to Alchemy at least once a month, whether it's New York or San Francisco. So I actually try to oscillate between East Coast and West Coast as much as possible. Um, I, I end up tending to go more to San Francisco because that's where our founders are, our founding team, as well as the management team. Um, but uh, I, I see the formula for memberships like OG and F-Suite are, are going to be, you know, largely being a hybrid approach for in-person and, and remote, just as they're doing right now. I think it's pretty successful. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was a few months ago, and it was a it was a, it was about a very uh, old school company called Smuckers, and you mm. may have bought Jam, may right? Have. And I think they recently bought Twink Hostess. Oh, potentially. Wow. I, I have to read up on it again and, and, and go back to the journal, but they have this interesting model where during the course of the pandemic, they didn't announce fully remote. There was not a company policy, but people were working from home, and it was almost like this indefinite thing because we were in the middle of the pandemic, and you know hospitalizations were still happening. And then their employees on their own volition uh, just started moving everywhere in the country, right? And they changed their permanent residences to Florida, Texas, maybe for tax purposes. There was this one person, according to the article, that moved to San Francisco even for, you know, their own personal reasons, et cetera. And, and Smuckers is uh, headquartered in, in uh, Illinois, right? It's like, like a lot of the other kind of like uh, consumer packaged goods companies, CBG, like Kraft, for instance, is in the Midwest, right? Very popular mm-hmm. uh, region for that, but now that the pandemic's over, they they were making people come in, but they realized that it was uh, very difficult. I think to just like because the reality is people didn't move everywhere; they didn't want to lose everyone. But they made it so that you know you can live wherever you want. We'll change your permanent address, figure out the payroll, but then you have to be in office three days a week for call it. I think it was like they call it core weeks. Mm. So every okay. two, every, every there's two weeks or three weeks every month uh, where it's dedicated project time, it's planning time for the upcoming quarter, it's product development for new, you know, placements of their goods in supermarket shelves or whatever, sales cycles. And people came. Mm-hmm. They came on their own dime. Oh, wow. You know, apparently they got together and it was successful enough that they could coordinate an acquisition of Hostess. You know, I, I I don't know, like like you know, you're traveling to New yep. York and San Francisco. Do you think this is going to happen for the whole company now? I don't know where all your employees are around the country, but do you think eventually it'll go back to this place where you got to just be in there? 
three three days a week. Certainly, if you're in in the kind of senior management ranks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because uh, my team is my direct reports are split between New York and San Francisco, so it'd be behoove me to be at one location and to not manage the team in the other. And it's also interesting, just being central standard as I am now, that I can, you know, move up a couple hours in my schedule to be able to accommodate um, California and then also be earlier for for New York. And that sort of three-hour delta between East Coast and West Coast is a little bit harder. Just that one-hour or two-hour difference makes it a little bit tougher for folks, especially if they've got families. Um, yeah kids after, you know, after school care and, um, you have to organize babysitters and, you know, I don't know, organize your, your workout schedule or or whatever to make it work. And so I don't know what the answer is, Eric, as far as like, what is the best approach? But what I, what I do know for, for myself is that I am most comfortable with coming in for a week, a month, so that means three weeks I'm remote. And for one week I come in and I'm in person. I'm attending all the the cultural events, the in-person meetings, and the all hands. Like it's 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 everything as if I were there the entire time. And um I find that to be a good um a good balance of of the two. Are those visits more curated for you than they than they would have been if let's say you were just going to the office every day? Yeah, no, they're they're not more curated for me. Um, if if the the questions around like have folks um, uh, done something to accommodate for my attendance there, maybe not curated for you from other folks accommodating, but do you try to get as many in person meetings, collaboration sessions as possible? Like, mm-hmm. you know, yes. I, I come into the office. Uh, so we have an office in San Francisco. I live in Davis, uh, by Sacramento. I go in every Wednesday. Sometimes it's a two-hour drive, but I make it in. And that day is that the, the day I do kind of all my important, like as many important meetings that can I, that I can have in person as possible. Yep. Yeah. Right. So I try to maximize that day. And frankly, it's it's been a little bit more organized for me versus like I just have that day and I tell everyone it's that day and mm-hmm. you know I get a lot out of it. Yeah. Versus like spreading it out across a week sometimes. Yeah, no, it's great. I I do all my in person one on ones uh, during that week that I'm in there, and you know, uh, in in just whatever other cross functional meetings that I can possibly get. It is to your point, like curated by me to to make sure that I've got enough uh, face time during that week. So I cram it all in, and then you know, during that one week, and then those three weeks away. You know, just go back to you know the same uh, the, the same cycles that we used to or are used to. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think I, I do think there is a productivity aspect to remote that we all experienced in the beginning of the pandemic that I think has held strong, mm-hmm. and definitely for for certain positions, whether in our function in accounting and finance or or others, there are just these these functions that it's it's mainly kind of called IC work that you need to head down, mm-hmm. get something done. Um, and so why waste two hours of your day commuting? Yep. Agreed. Right? Yep. Um, so yeah, Agreed. it makes sense. Yeah. In all honesty, my my uh, remote working has me more productive because it's less distracted by, you know, in-office uh, 
events and and whatnot. Um, you know, being within earshot can be a double-edged sword. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the good, the bad. Um, and and I find that you know, in accounting, it's a back office function. And and I think this this hybrid approach works out really well for me. Um, in my particular position, in in my department, I don't think it's a one size fits all. But uh, but you know, that's where I think folks have to find what works for them and where they can get the most value add. We have a segment on the show, and I'm going to subject you to it. Okay. It's this mm-hmm. idea that controllers are fun too, or accounting personnel, or what have you, and, and it's because you know what I am fun, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and and yes. you know we ask our guests if they have just any kind of funny accounting debacle or an odd expense report to share uh, to close out the show. And so, if you have any of those, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, the donks. <laughs> so, I I didn't what know that? what donks D O N. Okay, yeah, donks. I had no idea what they were um, until it came up in an expense report, and this was years ago. But uh, we we had a pretty vibrant sales team um, at my prior company. I won't tell the name, <laughs> but it, they um, they they did submit a lot of unusual things in the expense reports. But uh, the one that stuck out in my mind is is these these um, 24 inch chrome uh, chrome wheels that they call them spinners or donks. <laughs> I had to find out from someone who's like, you know, who understood that, you know, if you're in the right company, you get it. And I, I wasn't obviously in the right company. So I had to be told. Um, but uh, yeah, it was apparently a spiff for like a really great sales job. Uh, they closed a, a number of accounts and they're spiffing them these these 24 inch chrome wheels. So when they came across here, it just did not allow it. And and I think they sort of operated under this impression that um, accounting just rubber stamps things that go through. But our we had a staff uh, a staff person on um, who was looking at the expense reports that said, "I know what these are. These are dubs, and we're not going to pass them through." <laughs> and it's also a spiff, so technically you have to include it in their payroll. Exactly. Yeah, we'd have to find the 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 tax uh, the cost basis and like yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can only like so so. I don't know how close you were to this, or if this is a secondhand story. Like like I've been part of situations like this, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's a lengthy education process for everyone involved, and then that that education process is the kind of deterrent for mm-hmm. future instances. Oh yeah, subjecting. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone in sales to an hour-long training on everything that's related to the policy and yeah. the ramifications if you do this on taxes and everything else, and you know, right? Yeah, no, I think um, if it, and that's that's if you're lucky. If you're unlucky, you're going to have to, you know, basically uh, <laughs> make an example of them, <laughs> which is never good. Um, but yeah, no, being able to to hold quorum. Um, and and to share and educate sort of why or why not people should be doing things, I think is good stewardship, again, for the controllership desk. And uh, I'm sure the company like appreciates it and doesn't do it again in the future. I mean, I mean, I think about, you know, you have a lot of experiences at emerging tech companies, right? And they're all startups and they're all small companies. And 
part of the fun things about working at a startup, as hard as the work is and the amount of hours that it takes to get a company going when you're just a few people, um, is the freedom, right? And the ability to kind of try things out um, to, you know, speed up your business or grow it. Um, and the thing is, at a certain stage, there is a line. And I think the finance team does play a big role in fiscal responsibility and corporate governance. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, I totally resonate with that. Um, Sean, it was great to have you on the show. I appreciate all the insights that you gave on blockchain, digital assets, and, and all the accounting considerations. Um, thank you for, for being here with us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, Eric. Uh, really great catching up with you. And uh, yeah, now now you can come away with knowing what donks are. And I know. You didn't before. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Controllers Classified, presented by Brex. Brex is an AI-powered spend platform with global corporate cards, expense management, reimbursements, and travel. Visit Brex.com and follow Brex on social to see how they can take your accounting game and your company to new heights.